Lord, before we engage you in the word, I want to pray for another church and pray for another pastor and his wife. I want to lift up Rick and Julie Prettyman. And I uh, just want to, um, before even praying for the church that they are serving, I want to pray for their marriage and pray, um, I want to pray for Rick's heart that it'll be given in this direction, you first, and then in the direction of his bride, and then in the direction of his children, and then in the direction of the church at Aldersgate. Lord, I, uh, I beg for that in my life. Uh, given what, the, what marriage is, the ultimate picture of Christ in the church, I pray that Rick and Julie can enjoy putting the gospel on display, but the kids will hear preaching each week from their dad and their pastor, but that they'll see it lived out between Sundays and between counseling sessions or nights away visiting with one family or another, and they'll see it lived out. So it just be familiar on Sunday mornings as they hear the gospel preached. Lord, I pray that not just for Rick and Julie, but I pray that for myself and Christy. I pray that for the other elders and their wives pray that for our deacons and their families and their marriages and pray for that for every marriage in this body that it will be that first and foremost a display an illustration a walking parable of the gospel I pray that as Rick studies that he has uh, Julie in view he has his kids in view and he has your people at Aldersgate in view Lord I pray that you'll be glorified in that priority and that you will make up in fact that you will amplify and multiply the ministry to the people of God at Aldersgate because of his honoring your design and because he's honoring your priorities and loving his wife well as Christ loved the church. I beg for that in this, in this church as well. Thankful for an opportunity to enjoy you out loud in Greenville alongside Aldersgate, and we pray for great things for your glory in that church. Lord, in these next few minutes, as far as this church goes, I'm um, just feeling really, really frail and feeble and inadequate and insufficient in lifting up such heavy truths and such important truths. And I feel privileged all at the same time. And I offer up the next few minutes as worship. I want to worship you in preaching. And I pray that your people will worship in listening. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to the book of Hebrews. We're in our second week in this book. Last week was really sort of almost kind of a bird's eye instruction manual, bird's eye view on the book of Hebrews explaining how to read it. I confessed to you last week that I viewed Hebrews as sort of um, just this theological monument. Like somebody, we, we don't know who the author was, somebody just raised up and said, man, I'm just going to teach some important truths. But come to find out, it's more than that. It was written for a purpose. It was written by a pastor, not some aloof, disengaged theologian. But it was written by a pastor to his people. He wasn't with them in person in the flesh But he's writing to them, encouraging them not with a pep talk, not with sentimental stories, not with quaint 
illustrations so much, although he does use illustrations. He's lifting up the truths of the gospel, and that's what he's encouraging them with. The church that he's writing to is likely a little house church in Rome, maybe 15 to 20 people, not a big, massive group of people, but a church nonetheless, likely uh, exclusively, if not exclusively, at least primarily, Hellenistic Jew, meaning non-native Jew, meaning non-Hebrew-speaking Jew, but Greek-speaking Jews, likely in Rome. As we climb into our passage this morning, you're going to see, I'm going to deal with briefly the problem of this little church, but before I deal with the problem in the first couple of verses, I just want to say that this was a church on decline. Their parents had heard and seen, or at least some of those parents, had heard and seen the ministry of Christ firsthand. And this second generation church was already on decline. Former members were leaving the faith and leaving the fellowship. So we're going to climb into the first few verses, really verse 1 and the first half of verse 2 this morning. In the first four verses of what's called the exordium of the book of Hebrews, an exordium is really sort of an introduction to some sort of oratory work. An exordium is going to introduce a problem and a stance. And you're going to hear this writer go right to the heart of the matter right off the bat here in these first couple of verses. I want to encourage you, as I encouraged you last week, to memorize the book of Hebrews as we go. It's possible. Trust me, if we're here for five or six or ten years, you can learn it. You can, a verse at a time. So, first couple of verses, or at least verse one and the first half of verse two. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, I'm going to deal with three contrasts this morning, three contrasts that are dealing with the fact, first of all, that God speaks. And I don't want to assume that God speaks because I fear that may have been the problem of the Hebrew church. Well, yeah, that's a given that he's spoken and speaks. This writer goes right to the heart of the problem of the Hebrew church right off the bat saying God spoke to our fathers and he has spoken in his son or by his son. The problem with this church is you remember from last week, they had stopped listening to God. Second generation believers, their parents are able to give, or some of them, eyewitness accounts of what Jesus said and did, and they're already not listening. If we think 2,000 years later that that's not a potential problem for us, then we're proud and arrogant and ignorant. Second generation church had already stopped listening. And the message of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 1, pay closer attention to what you've heard. Chapter 5, verse 11, you become dull of hearing. And then in chapter 12, the other bookend, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. The point of Hebrews is listen to God because he's speaking. If we assume that he's spoken and speaks then we may be like the Hebrews church. Just for a moment, I want us to consider the fact that he does speak and consider that it tells us something about our God. It tells us that our God is relational. 
and engaging. I don't know if any of you have a friend that your friends then don't speak to each other. It's hard to really be a friend and have relationship and friendship with someone without interacting and dialoguing and speaking with each other. God speaks, and it's a picture of his relationship with us, and he is engaging. We can know that about him. He's relational. He's engaging. He's disclosing. He's discussing. He's explaining. He's illuminating. And the subject of all those conversations is himself. And the purpose of all those conversations is his revelation and his glory. The first use here in this passage, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That word spoke in the original language is a participle. Now, I don't expect that everybody remembers what a participle is, but it's sort of like a verbal noun. It's sort of like if you have a word that is, um, is sort of nounish, but it has kind of a verb um, impact. You put an I-N-G on the end of it. It would be like translating this as the God spoken to our fathers by the prophets. The spoken God. To make it make more sense to us, we could call him the speaking God. And that's an appropriate way to think about our God. He's not only the God who speaks, he is the speaking God. When I was growing up, there was a series of commercials that uh, when I was a kid, E.F. Hutton commercials, and I'm dating myself. Some of you know what I'm talking about with the E.F. Hutton commercials. They're different settings. These guys, two guys might be sitting in a restaurant at lunch couple guys, I pulled up a YouTube video this morning, a couple guys are jogging. Another couple guys are grabbing their luggage off the, um, tri- the little luggage thing, I don't know what that's called, at the airport. And they're having a conversation, and one guy, they're jogging along, he says, man, I've been thinking about my investments. That's not what I talk about when I'm running, but these guys happen to be talking about that. I can't talk when I'm running, first of all. But these guys are talking. I can get, man, I've been thinking about my investments. And he starts kind of commenting on it. And the other guy says, well, my broker, E.F. Hutton, says, and everything just goes deathly quiet. People are riding their bikes, and they just stop riding and just freeze so they can hear what these runners are talking about. In the restaurant, the whole din of the restaurant just goes silent so they can hear what E.F. Hutton is saying. It's a great picture of the picture of the people of God, our posture as we are poised to hear from God because God has spoken and God speaks. I was thinking about another illustration that's really near and dear to me. If, for example, you're a Mavericks and Cowboys fan like I am, (laughs) like seriously into sports, you want to stay on top of all the details that are going on with the team. You want to be listening in, right, Lance? I mean, you want to stay tuned to what's going on with the team, the decisions that are made, players that are traded, positions that are assigned. You want to know if somebody's injured. You're tuned in like E.F. Hutton is speaking. You want to stay on top of it. I was thinking, too, about Facebook. I had a period of time on Facebook, so I had a little bit of exposure to it. And I know that you stay tuned to the people you want to hear from. The problem is on Facebook, the people that are often the most vocal and giving the most updates are the people you want the, less, the least detail about. <laughs> it's crazy. Thankfully, you could hide those people and you just never have to hear from them again. You can still be their friend and you don't burn a bridge with them, but you don't have to hear their updates about brushing their teeth and stuff. <laughs> but the reality is you want to hear the status updates are the tweets from people that matter whose words and updates matter. 
you listen to what matters to you. And for the people of God, the character of the people of God is that we stay tuned to what God has said and is saying because God speaks. I'm thankful that our God is a speaking God because if he didn't speak, we would live in thick pitch darkness. We would live in abject hopelessness. If our God were not a speaking God and was not disclosing who he was and is, then we would have no understanding of not only our condition, but the only hope that we have in the person and work of Jesus Christ. A silent God is an unknown God, and that's not our God. Our God is speaking God. Amen? Now, three contrasts regarding God's spoken message. You may not see them at first blush in this passage, but I'll just kind of bring them out, then we're going to unpack them in the next few minutes. The first contrast is contrasting God speaking long ago versus God speaking in these last days. The next contrast is God speaking by the prophets versus God speaking by his son. And the third contrast, really sort of the culmination of these contrasts and really the most important point being made is that God spoke it many times and many ways versus the implied God spoke finally and completely in and through his son. Okay, let's start first with God spoke long ago and in these last days. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start with long ago and just look as long ago as we have any record of, and that's going to begin in Genesis chapter 1. I want to show you, first of all, that God spoke long ago. Since the beginning, he's been speaking. And as you're turning there, let me tell you, too, that in the mind of the Jew and in the mind of the early Christian, there was a very distinct understanding of two ages. The long ago ages and then the last day ages. We'll talk about the last days ages here in just a minute. But the long ago ages is what I want to talk about first. The long ago ages would go from creation to really, you could say, right up until Malachi or so, about four to 500 years before Christ. That would be considered the long ago in this context. But let's start with just the longest ago. Genesis chapter 1. You can follow along with me if you want. I'll give you a passage reference, but I want you to see something. In verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. In verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. In verse 6, God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. In verse 8, God called the expanse heaven. Verse 9, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth. Verse 11, and God said. Verse 14, and God said. Verse 22, and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. Verse 24, and God said. Verse 26, and God said. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed. Chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, 
You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Verse 18, and the Lord God said, thankfully, I'm glad he said this, it's not good that man should be alone. Right, men? God said these things. In chapter 3, he starts to speak judgment. And God said to the serpent, verse 14. God said to the woman, verse 16, verse 17. And at, to Adam, he said, and in verse 22, and God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. I know that may seem like overkill to you to just make the point that God spoke long ago, but there is a point. God has been speaking from the very beginning, and he's been speaking a lot. In the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, the longest ago that we have on record anyway, there are 18 references to just God said. That's not even counting where God called or God blessed or God does something else that has to do with a message and with him speaking. We have a speaking God, and he's been speaking since long ago. Now, that's in contrast with the last days. The last days that are referred to here would deal with what's called the eschaton. In fact, that's a Greek word in that passage dealing with the end times, the last days, of which we're in right now as well. The same times that those Hebrews readers would have been as they read this passage 2,000 years ago. Just because it's 2,000 years old, don't let you think, don't let yourself think. They were not in the last days. This is dealing with God's redemptive story. The reason we can say it's the last day is because the next thing that's going to happen is the last step of the redemptive story where Christ comes back. And it's imminent. It's been imminent for 2,000 years. It's important to realize that we live in the last days right now. It's important to note too, this reference to last days is not a quantitative reference. It's not like a chronological reference that he's just trying to give them some map or some timeline of where this thing fits in. It is a qualitative reference. It would be like saying these are the best of days. You're not saying they're the last days or the first days or the middle days. You're talking about a qualitative statement. This is a qualitative statement about the eschaton, about Christ coming and putting on flesh and preaching and dying and then coming back. We live in those last days now. I had an email dialogue the early part of this week that went back and forth with Brad Gallion. Brad has been studying another, um, kind of going through some uh, lessons from uh, Wayne Grudem, I think. I can't remember. But he's been studying these lessons. that have been talking about this period between the Testaments. It's often called the intertestamental period. Probably better understood the intercovenantal period than moving from an old covenant to a new covenant. And there's a period of about 500 years where God is sort of silent. I mean, there's lots going on. There's lots happening to the nation of Israel. And he's preparing the, the, the environment for Christ to show up in the fullness of time, in Galatians 4 says. But there's about a four to 500 period where um, some people have called it um, the, the, the silence of heaven. And Brad was just sort of musing and thinking on why that might be. And as I'm sitting here thinking, I'm thinking, man, that's a pregnant silence, and I'm glad it's there because it punctuates and accentuates the last days when Christ shows up. And he starts explaining and exposing the rest of the story. It's a nice, appropriate, pregnant 
clause or moment. You could almost look at it like it's a Sabbath silence. And then come Monday in the fullness of time when John the, Beb- when the, John the Baptist shows up and says, man, I'm preaching about this light that's coming into the world and I'm, I'm, I'm here to make straight the way of the Lord. When that preaching begins, then heaven opens up and he starts speaking again. That pregnant period seems appropriate. And it's very important for us to realize that we live in these last days right now. I have a little assignment for you as shepherds, um, as families, shepherds of families. Write down 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Study that as families this week. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through, 8 through 13. It should affect how you live knowing that we live in the last days. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verses 8 through 13. Now the second contrast. The first was God spoke long ago versus God has spoken in Christ in these last days. The second contrast is God spoke by the prophets versus now God has spoken, listen to this, in son. We'll deal with in son here in a moment. But first I want to deal with the prophets. Turn to Job chapter 9. I want to show you just a few snapshots of my... All I'm doing is showing you my favorites. There's no way. I mean, we'd have to read the entire Old Testament to expose what God has said through the prophets. But I just want to grab a couple of mountaintop messages or mountaintop conversations. Job chapter 9. I'll give you a page number in your ESV. It's page 423. Most of you know the story of Job. Job has been, um, at the Lord's permission, has been subjected to some pretty ugly stuff. He's lost everything except his lovely wife. If you know the story, you know that that's, I'm being facetious. In chapter 9 of Job, verse 33, Job is in the middle of this thing where he's just crying out to God, God, why are you doing this? God, give me an answer. God, help me understand. I've followed you. I've pursued you. Why are these ugly things happening to me? And in chapter 9, verse 33, he says, There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. Arbiter could be thought of as like a mediator, a go-between. And there's a little note down in my Bible that puts it, poses that question. Would that there were an arbiter between us, or a plea. Would that there was somebody between me and God that would help me understand this situation. God spoke through Job, and he's pointing, preparing the ground for his son right there because we have an arbiter. We have a mediator between us and God, and it's God the Son who has a hand on God and a hand on us, reconciling us, explaining things. God spoke through the prophets, and Job is one of my early favorites. Abraham's the next one. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. I read this passage because in some ways it reveals the character of God, the kind of people that God looks for, the type of scenarios that God works with so that he can be glorified. Genesis chapter 15, God is speaking to and through Abraham. Page 10 
of your ESV Bibles. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. That's just like God to take the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That's the way he works. He takes the unlikelies. He takes an old man here, 100 years old, takes a barren wife. Barren? How are you going to have a child? How are you going to have some sort of offspring through that? Well, leave it to God. Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. What? Seeing the character of God as God is exposing who he is through this scenario with Abram. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, Abram, and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Mountaintop message from God through and to Abram. Now let's go to Moses. Turn to Exodus chapter 34. I really, I'm, I think this is my favorite passage in, in, the, in the Old Testament. I'll give you a little context as you're turning there. It's page 74 of your pew Bible. Moses has asked God to reveal to him his glory. God, show me your glory is the request. And God says, you know what? If I were to do that, it would destroy you. It would burn you up. So I think what I'll do is I'll stick you in the cleft of this rock, and as I pass, shield your eyes. As I pass by, I'll give you a glimpse of my receding glory as I go by. So God does that, and as he passes by Moses, he declares who he is. Listen to this. God speaking long ago, speaking through and to the prophets. Listen to what he says. The Lord passed before Moses. Moses is stuck in the cleft of this rock. And he proclaimed, listen, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Anybody like that? Yes. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Yes. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So far, the definition of the pronouncement of who he is is really encouraging, right? If it stopped right there, though, Rob Bell would be right. He didn't stop right there. God kept disclosing who he is as he's passing by Moses. And he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Wait a second, I thought he just said he was going to forgive the iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? What? Anybody else scratching their head over that? God, you would have to be ambiguous. You'd have to be capricious. You'd have to be unpredictable to administer grace to some and not to others. How are you going to do that and be consistently holy, consistently just? You'd have to be like Sybil. When I was growing up, there was a show about Sybil that had multiple personalities. It was weird for a kid. What? God would have to have multiple personalities. How are you going to do that, God? Well, the way he does that is in the person of Christ. God is disclosing who he is. We're going to come back to this later. 
in the morning. But that is a mountaintop exposure right there, no pun intended, of the character of our God. Because God has been speaking through the prophets since long ago. I have two Bibles in the pulpit this morning, so you know you're in for a serious sermon when I have two Bibles. I have my old Bible. I started a new Bible when we started Exodus that's not all marked up. So I have my old Bible that's all marked up because there's some passages in Isaiah that are near and dear to me that I want to share with you. Messages from God long ago through the prophets. Here's just some snapshots. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Anybody here with young? Whenever church dismisses this morning, look around. Young everywhere. That's encouraging to me to know that that's the kind of God that we have that's going to tend to those and minister to those with young. He's speaking a message through the prophets, declaring and exposing who he is. Here's another one. I will lead, this is near and dear to me and Christy. I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. I'm thankful for this disclosure about our God. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. I will turn the rough places into level ground. God has been speaking for a long time and disclosing and sharing who he is, exposing his character. Later he says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Here's another one. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with whom or with what are you in labor? Later he says, I am God and there is no other. I am God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Just some snapshots. Favorite exposure, mountaintop moments for me that I treasure where God spoke clearly and truthfully through the prophets. Our Bibles are full of these types of stories. I bet you have some near and dear ones. Those were spoken long ago through the prophets in contrast with him speaking now in Son. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The thing you, wanna, you need to understand about Christ, the difference between Christ and our Old Testament prophets is they brought a message. Christ is the message. In fact, he identifies himself as he is the Word. He's not just bringing a Word. He is the Word. This is an important contrast. It's brought out in the original language that could be translated. He spoke by the prophets versus he spoke in Son. That's, that reference right there is called an anarthrous use of son. It has no definite article. And it's, it's used to accentuate the fact that he's bringing a message in son. It's sort of like saying that he's speaking son-ease. I thought about some languages. Italian, Cantonese, I don't know why that came up. Spanish, 
The message that Christ brings in these last days is sun-ease. It is sun-ish. It is sunian. The language of his message was and is sun. The content of his message is sun. The point of his message is Son, He wasn't just a messenger of a message like all these Old Testament prophets were. I'm thankful for my treasure. He was the message itself. He was messenger and message. He contrasts these later in the book of Hebrews. Turn back to Hebrews. I'm going to show you a few of these contrasts. The first contrast, as you're turning there, I'll tell you, is the rest of chapter 1. After the the little first four verses section, the rest of chapter 1, he's showing the superiority of Christ over the angels. Apparently, they had this weird thing going with angels, and we'll talk about that in the next few weeks at some point. He contrasts his superiority over the angels. In chapter 3, look at verse 5. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. These guys would have had a seriously high view of Moses, as we should too. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later, he was faithful in all God's house. But Christ is faithful, watch, over God's house as a son. And Moses was just an instrument. Moses was just a messenger. And he was faithful in the house Christ is faithful over the house. He contrasts angels with Christ. He contrasts Christ with Moses. In chapter 4, verse 8, look at this briefly. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He's talking about the rest that Joshua is hopefully leading them into as they go into the promised land. He says, you know what? They didn't find real rest. Only real rest comes in the ultimate Sabbath, which is Christ. Christ is better than angels. Christ is better than Moses. He's better than prophets. He's better than Joshua. Chapter 7, verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. He's better than the law. All those things are awesomeness, right? Greatness. But he's better than all those things. Another little contrast. Chapter 9, verse 25. I'll start in verse 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. You could contrast right there. He's talking about tabernacle versus heaven. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's contrasting Old Testament sacrifices and the superiority of Christ as a sacrifice. Contrasting the the tabernacle with the superiority of heaven. Contrasting the work of the Old Testament priests with the superiority of Christ. If y'all don't get that, then you'll be just like the Hebrews that said, well, yeah. It's a big deal. That is the deal. 
all those things pointed to Christ. The problem is they were embracing them like they were on par with Christ. And he's showing them, man, the prophets, they were necessary. They're a good thing. But the theme of this book is Christ's superiority over all the previous things. The prophets were many, living in many times and many places. They gave God's message in many times and in many different ways. Each prophet had a distinct and unique gift or burden or character. There was Jeremiah who's weeping all over the pages of the book of Jeremiah. There's Ezekiel, this like psychedelic. Ezekiel, what do you... You read a chapter in Ezekiel and you're like, well, I don't know what he just said. What did he just say? There's reluctant Jonah. These men were sinful men. Isaiah 6, remember the context where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up? And what does he do? He doesn't give him a high five. Hey, there's the Lord. He goes looking for a crack in the ground because he says, man, I'm a sinful man. And I need to find a place to hide from your holiness. Isaiah, like the rest of them, are sinful. They were, they were utilized. They were tools. They were messengers. But they were sinful. They did not possess the Spirit continually. The Word came to them, but they were not the Word. You understand that? Like John the Baptist, they had to testify, I'm not the light. I'm only sent to bear witness to the light. You know what's funny about these Old Testament prophets too? They didn't even understand fully what they were saying. Passage I'll read to you. You can jot this down, but I've got it right here, so I'll read it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. These Old Testament prophets that God spoke to long ago and to and through, these guys are clawing at and scratching at the ultimate meaning. They don't even understand fully the realities of what they're exposing. But then there's Christ on the other hand, who came in the fullness of time at precisely the appointed hour and place. Not many times in many places he came to one place. One unimpressive place, having been there. He came and walked at three miles an hour. He had no single unique gift or burden, but was the complement of all gifts and the full disclosure of God. And he, in contrast with the earlier messengers, was not sinful, but the opposite. And he, unlike the early messengers, under, not only understood his message, he was his message. You understand the superiority of Christ? a speaker over the prophets. In the last contrast, God spoke at many times and in many ways versus God spoke finally and completely. Many times and many ways, God spoke through Job. read a passage this morning from Job. God spoke through Moses, that divine conundrum, among other things. God spoke through Isaiah. God spoke through Daniel. God spoke through Ezekiel. God spoke through Malachi. From Abraham to Zephaniah, God spoke. I thought I was being ingenious and nifty going from Abraham because that starts with an I and Zephaniah starts with a Z and I was kind of proud of myself and then I realized that Jesus talked about the prophets that you killed from Abel to Zechariah and I was like, oh man, he already got it. The gamut 
God has spoken through, through unlikely mediums, through angels, through dreams, through visions, through a storm, through thunder, through a still small voice, through a bush, through handwriting on a wall, God spoke. God spoke through a talking donkey, which is especially encouraging for me. God has been speaking many times in many ways. He spoke through an open sky, through a parted cloud. He's spoken through a quaking mountain. He's spoken through 40 days of rain. He's spoken through years of drought. He's spoken through relentless plagues like frogs, hail, boils, blood, locusts, gnats, flies, even through darkness. God spoke. He's spoken some amazing illustrations. You remember the flannel graph where Nathan comes to David? That really was a flannel graph. I don't know if you realize that. It's a flannel board with a little cutout of a sheep and shepherds. and it, it, I don't know that it was flannel. So you're like, serious? <laughs> That's the way I learned it as a kid where Nathan comes to David and says, you know, one guy's rich and has a bunch of sheep and another guy is poor and only has one little wee ewe lamb. And the rich guy takes the ewe lamb and he ends it with, you are the man, David. God was speaking through Nathan. He spoke through Isaiah, who had to go naked and barefoot for three years. Some people put forth Isaiah's messages. Hey, who will send? Who shall I send? Who shall I go? And say, I'll go. Let me go. Forgetting to point out the fact that just, just a couple verses later, a couple minutes later, he says, how long I got to do that? The more you preach, the deafer they're going to be. The more you preach, the harder their heart's going to be. And oh, by the way, you got to go naked for three years. Whoa. Can you find somebody else to do this? God spoke through that. He spoke through a man that had to go marry a prostitute, a man named Hosea. Marry a woman named Gomer. Hosea, listen, I know you got plans for a really sweet little home girl, hometown girl, freckles. I've got some other plans for you. I want you to go marry a prostitute and show Israel what they're doing to me. God spoke at many times and in many ways. He spoke through illustrations. He spoke through parables, through a storm or a few days in the belly of a whale. He spoke in prediction, through linear argument, in prose, in poetry. The one thing that's consistent in the, in the long ago ages about how God spoke is that it's not consistent. The message is, but how and where he communicated is so varied. But the reality, as according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God clearly spoke through these men. But in these last days, he has spoken by his son. In the first case, there's many ways and many times of speaking. But in these last days, as this has been reduced to one message and one messenger, and his name is Jesus. His message is complete. His message is final. Revelation comes in two forms. There's general revelation and there's specific revelation. General revelation is the sort of thing where you wake up on a morning if you're up this early and you look out at the sky and you see the most amazing sunrise. I've seen some of the most awesome sunrises I've ever seen from Brad Cardwell's barn. We're out there lifting weights watching the sunrise. 
some amazing sunsets you see right at the end of 1570 in the evenings if you're paying attention. And they're supposed to declare the glory of God. Day to day pours forth speech. That is revelation. But if that's all we had, we might go worship that sunset. That's what a lot of the world has done. But then there's special revelation. This is special revelation. The spoken, exposed, clear message of our creator. So where we can see him, we can understand him, we can know him, we can hear that spoken word through the pages of this book. But what you need to understand about this specific revelation is it didn't all happen at once. If you were Adam, you had a pretty small Bible. If you were Adam... All you've got is eat from any tree of the garden, but don't eat from that one. That's a pretty thin Bible, wouldn't it? Cliff Notes version. Tiny. The nature of specific revelation is that it is progressively exposed. And these Old Testament prophets that spoke long ago, they are progressively exposing this story and this reality. And then when Christ shows up, he completes it. The New Testament letters, all they do is point back at what Christ said. This is so important to realize because so much of the world is looking for a new message. I need a new word from the Lord. What? He spoke. He's finished the conversation. Now we just listen. Now we just enjoy this spoken word that Christ finished speaking. He completed this message. Previous messages and writings, you need to understand, these Old Testament prophets, as they're writing, they're not broken messages. They're not half-truths. They're completely true, but they don't reveal the truth completely. Do you understand that? Don't look at these Old Testament writings and say, I don't need that. I had a conversation with a guy the other day who's in the church, not in our church, but he said, man, I just kind of get tired of all those Old Testament studies. And sermons. I mean, that's old news. Wait a second, man, those are completely true. They may not reveal the truth completely, but they are completely true. Progression isn't from less true to more true. Progression isn't from less worthy to more worthy. Progression isn't from less mature to more mature. Progression is from promise to fulfillment. We need the whole conversation. You need to know what those old prophets have said. You need to engage them, but you need to realize when Christ showed up, he's going to reveal all things, the conclusion of the matter, so to speak. Turn to John chapter 4. I'm going to land the plane here in a minute. But man, if you miss these next couple minutes, you've missed the message. These next couple minutes are bringing it home. John chapter 4. Jesus and his disciples are going through Samaria. And it's desert. So you need water to live. So they're stopping at a water hole in Samaria. And a woman comes out to get some water. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with this woman. And he's trying to not trying to. He's working in the direction of talking specifically, personally about her worship. And she's wanting to take it to sort of a debate. Hey, you think we're going to worship on the hill that the Samaritans say we're going to worship on? Or do you think we're going to worship on the hill that the Jews, Jews say we're going to worship on? 
And Jesus takes it in the direction of speaking directly to this woman about her situation. And the woman says to him in verse 25, this is important. It's important to think this is coming from a sinful woman that's had a row of husbands and is now living with a dude that she's not married to. And she's not even Jewish in the purest sense. She's Samaritan. She says this in verse 25. She said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who's called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Do you consider what Christ has said as all things? Is it your all thing? Or is it a peripheral thing? When you have marriage issues, or job issues, or health issues, or identity, purpose, meaning issues, is Christ, what Christ has said, is that all things for you? It's supposed to be. It's the conclusion of God's conversation exposing who he is, and it continues to speak. It was spoken in and through and by, in the person of, and by the person of Christ. And it is to become our all thing. A sinful Samaritan woman at least has the idea. I don't know that she's embraced it. But do you? Is what Christ has said that important to you? Is it one of your, does it fit within your all things? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I do want you to see this passage and it's probably the last place I'm going to have you turn this morning. But don't start shuffling your gear till you're ready to go. Because we have lots to do yet. Man, this is so good. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, page uh, 964, the Pew Bible or ESV. For all the promises of God, listen. All the promises of God find their yes in him. What I want you to think about, just think back to that conundrum I presented that Moses wrote about and experienced earlier that we mentioned earlier this morning. Where he's merciful and forgiving and graceful, but then yet he's not going to let the, the, the sinful go without punishment. And in fact, he's going to visit iniquity upon children and the children's children of the third generation. How's that going to be achieved? It's going to be achieved in Christ. That promise about who he is and his character and his nature is explained in the person of Christ. He's how the sinful fathers don't bear the iniquity and their children don't bear their iniquity as we worship him. He's how we experience the forgiveness and the forgiven iniquity by the Father. He's how that's accomplished. Does that just, I mean, does anybody else love that? Anybody? For all the promises of God find their yes in him, that being Jesus. That's why it's through him that we utter our, main, our amen to God for his glory. Amen is like saying, uh-huh. As you see these things unfolding, do you look at Christ and go, uh-huh? There it is. There's the conclusion of the matter. There's the answer. There's the solution to this big, fat, ugly dilemma that I don't know how to deal with. Because Christ fulfills it. 
share an illustration with you, and then I'm going to share an application. Matthew chapter 17. Don't turn there. Just listen. You can jot it down. If you want to turn, you can. I don't want to keep you from it, but listen. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Just for the next 30 seconds, join James and Peter and John. Join them as we go up this high mountain. You're Jewish. Just be a a native Jew for the next couple minutes. Climb this high mountain with Jesus. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his, his clothes became white as light. Just imagine that for a minute. You've been following Jesus. He said, hey, come follow me. So you're following him. You've seen him do some miracles, awesomeness. He says, hey, I want you to go with me. Peter, James, John, Brad, Christy, you know, Jeff, Cindy, y'all come on up the hill. Let me show you something. You go up the hill and his face shines like the sun. You're like, Shazam, that's amazing. And then, behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, you're a Jew. There's Moses and Elijah, and you're like, whoa, Moses. Now, that's seriously awesome. Elijah, there he is. I always wondered what he looked like. And here he is talking with Jesus, and that's so cool. You might do what Peter said. Peter then next, just showing the kind of man that he is, says, Hey, Lord, it's sure a good thing we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Sounds like Peter, doesn't it? (laughs) Oh, Peter. He was still speaking when... It just cracks me up that Peter's still, he's still getting those words out of his mouth. And then this next part unfolds. It's like God, Jesus, they're not even waiting for Peter. Just stomping right over everything he just said. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son. He didn't say, hey, this is my beloved son. And then here's Moses and here's Elijah. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. You hear that? Because the message of Moses and Elijah, they are eclipsed in the glory of Christ's message. Those promises are fulfilled in Christ's message. Do you see that image? And then watch what happens next. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. So we all, we join them, we're on our face, we're terrified, shaking, Just voice from heaven. But Jesus came and touched them. And he said, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Does anybody else love that? Could you be a Jew long enough to where you go, oh, where did Moses and Elijah go? Oh, who cares? There's Jesus. Listen to him. Does anybody else just get goosebumps thinking about that moment? Everybody else has just disappeared, and then there's Jesus. Listen to him. Because his message was the final and complete message. I thought I would share as an application and an implication something that's recent. Take this truth from two different directions. If you've been paying attention to the sermons the last few weeks, you know a couple weeks ago, Lance preached a sermon from Psalm chapter 1. And I'm going to turn there and read it to you. You don't have to. You, you might know it or 
You can turn there if you like, but I want to show you an illustration of this sermon. How to apply this, shepherds. If you've been engaging this sermon this long, you're like, okay, man, this is heavy stuff. It's heavy lifting. I know. You're like, okay, what do I do with this? Here's what you do with this. Psalm chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Let's personalize this. Long ago, God spoke to our fathers by David. And here's what God said to us through David. He said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Okay, so far, bad news, right? Standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers, uh, uh, walking in the counsel of the wicked. But the blessed man, the righteous man, delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff and the wind drives them away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is a psalm about two ways. If you're listening to God's message through the prophets long ago, you read this and go, okay, this is absolutely, completely true, but it doesn't reveal the truth completely. Because I, as I endeavor to be this righteous man and to walk in this righteous way, guess what? Sometimes I sit in the seat of scoffers. Sometimes I find myself standing squarely in the way of sinners. Anybody else? Any of you? Can anyone read this psalm and say, yeah, (laughs) that's me? Anybody? We should endeavor to be this man because it's God's best for us. Yes, it's completely true, but it doesn't reveal the truth completely. What it should do for us is if this was all we had, it should create a big old itch in the middle of our back that we can't reach. And we're like, oh, man, you're trying to rub it against something i got to scratch that. It's just killing me. And then a thousand years later, after this message is preached, Christ shows up and explains it. I am that righteous way. He turns to Thomas or Philip. I can't remember who. They said, we don't know the way you're going. He says, you know what? I'm the righteous way. I'm the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You endeavor to be that righteous man, but guess what? You can't be that righteous man. In Christ you can, though, as you're wearing his righteous clothing. That's the good news. The message of the prophets is news. And it's important information. It's context. But you can't get the good news without it. But it in and of itself is not the good news. It prepares you for that big itch that's scratched in the, fin- in the finished and complete and perfect work of Christ. Where you get, oh yes, oh yes, good. That scratched my itch. What Christ did, completed it, fulfilled it, explained it. Like Lance said a couple weeks ago, if I stopped right here, it'd be three quarters of a gospel message. The problem is, churches all over, Christian churches all over our country and all over our world can potentially... Leave this as their message. 
And everybody walks out saying, okay, I got to try to stand and not to stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers or, and I'm just going to do my best. And if I do stand it, if, if I delight in the law more than I do those things, then I guess I'm okay. Does anybody else have a problem with that? That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is that, yes, you endeavor to do those things because it's God's best, but when you fail, you have righteous clothing of the one who is truly the righteous way. That is the good news. You see how that old story comes together with the completion of the story to make something that makes sense. If all you have is the old story, then you might as well be a Jew, an Old Testament Jew, an unbelieving Jew, because you're trusting in your works. And this writer calls them dead works. You understand that? You can be really sincere too. You think the Pharisees and Sadducees weren't sincere? You can say, man, I really love God. And I'm going to love God by being the most righteous guy that I can be. And I'm just going to meditate on this law day and night. Man, that's good. But if you don't realize your shortcomings don't measure up to a holy, perfect, pure God, you don't measure, you realize that there's a distance there that's got to be made up by that other that Job begged for. Only if there was an arbiter between me and him that could put my, his hand on me and my, his hand on God. That's what Christ is for us. You understand that? That's the good news. When you're sharing with somebody that doesn't know Jesus, that's the good news that we preach. Man, that's, that's it. It's easy to stop short of the last quarter of the message. Going back to Lance's illustration. It's easy to stop short. Parents, be a good boy. Don't make my life so miserable. Don't embarrass me. Any other parents in here think like that sometimes? Be a righteous boy. Don't stand in the way of sinners. Should you be saying that to your kid? Yes, please. Some of you say it again, please. <laughs> I'm kidding. But you got to complete the rest of the story. You got to say, and you know what? When you fail today, son, you put on that righteous clothing of our blessed Savior. Enjoy his perfections. And the beauty is he will change you when you do that to where you look more like him in time. When you do that, that's called worship. When you, do, when you don't do that and you just endeavor to be righteous on your own, that's called sin. That's not the good news. That's not even Christian. It's worldly. So you flip that thing around. And go to Christ for the completion of the story. But to flip it around realizes that Christ can't be properly understood except within the context of God's revelation to Israel. You don't even know who Christ is except that you engage those long ago prophets. I heard a guy explain it like a joke. He said he was telling his joke, a guy named Peter Lightheart, said he was telling his children a joke about a priest, a rabbi, a doctor, and a lawyer going to a bar. And the bartender looks up and says, what, am I in a joke? Those of you that laugh have heard a context of jokes having to do with a priest, a rabbi, a doctor, and a lawyer. 
So you get the irony there. Those of you that are younger and haven't heard that context before, you're going, okay, I know it's supposed to be funny because the metric sound of it sounded like a punchline, and I want to kind of follow along, so... (laughs) But I don't really get it. And that's what a lot of Christianity is. You're reading the New Testament saying, I know this is supposed to be awesome, and so I'm just going to embrace it, but I don't really get it. You don't get it without the Old Testament and those old, long-ago prophets. Christ is only understood in that context. So in some ways, we need to be quite Jewish before we can be quite Christian. You understand what I'm saying? In some ways, we have to be almost like a Jew before you can be a really fervent, white-hot, informed, true exposer and embracer of the truth. You don't really know who Christ is and what he's done except for engaging this big old long-ago story. Now, we're going to shift gears into the um, Lord's Supper. And um, I'm going to read a couple of passages of Scripture to you. I know this has been a, a, a big, fat, hefty sermon. And y'all have done a pretty good job listening. You might need to listen again. I think Hebrews is just going to be like that. I don't know that I've studied as much as I have this week since I've been in ministry. It's just heavy lifting. And I feel like when I stand in the pulpit, I was sick this morning when I got up because I'm like, I feel like an elementary kid, this elementary school kid that's got to go teach on calculus or something. You know, I hate to liken this to calculus, but it's got to go teach on, you know, something that's heady and heavy and more collegiate. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that we can't get it. We just have to work hard. We have to work hard to expose it, and we have to work hard to hear it. So I encourage you to do what this book is begging to do. Listen. I'll share a couple of passages with you before our Lord's Supper. Genesis chapter 11 says, Now the whole earth had one language and, and the same words. This is Lord's Supper prep, realize. It's kind of cool. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And look, here's the key. Let us make a name for ourselves. That's the problem of Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Notice he came down. (laughs) They're building this thing. Make a name for ourselves. And God still has to condescend to even take a look at it. He came down to see the city and the tower, I love that, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, keep that story of Babel in mind as you hear this passage in Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. 
from all tribes, from all peoples, and all languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they're crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures, and they just got on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever and ever. Amen. What I want you to understand is that the scattering of Babel is undone in the cross. You got to know that only the cross can unbabble. Nothing else can unbabble. Nothing else does that. Takes a guy on the other side of the world and makes him brother. It's awesomeness. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Now remember this great multitude is made up of every, every tribe, every nation, every people, every language. A great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The angel said to me, write this also, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The marriage supper of the Lamb is coming. It's imminent. Between now and then, what we do each week is sort of like an afternoon snack that tides us over. And this morning, it's a pretty cool privilege that we get to take supper with a brother from the other side of the world that is just another worshiper enjoying the same Lord and we're going to enjoy the same table together these next couple minutes. Let's dine. I'm going to show you how innocuous it might seem to just live in that long ago many times in many ways the prophet spoke. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever paid attention to VeggieTales you know video those are greatness. I'm not anti Veggie Tales. But if you let your kid watch a Veggie Tales story and then you turn it off and then you go about your day, you've left them with three quarters of the good news. Because the Veggie Tales story never ends with the greatness of Christ. It's be brave, be a good boy, be faithful, it's walk in the righteous way. It's a great message, but it's not all the message. The message that was communicated by the prophets long ago has got, us, got to create that itch that we go scratch or that is scratched in the finished work of Christ. When we take this cup and we take this supper, it's a weekly reminder that we are wearing alien righteousness. Don't let yourself forget that because you'll start to think that you got it going on. Humility decays. We have to be stirred up by way of reminder each week. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm saved absolutely and completely by the finished work of another. Pursue righteousness, but in response to what's been done for us. Let's take and drink and remember his perfect righteousness. Let's pray and we'll continue in song and giving.
God, I pray that you will just guard our hearts from just getting three-quarters of the message. Guard our parents from just teaching three-quarters of a message. Guard our kids from just embracing part of the story. Lord, I pray that this church will see the ultimate reality of the ultimate and finished work of Christ being our only hope. Lord, we are thankful for that message of old given through the prophets in many ways and in many times and in many places. We are so thankful that it provides context, that it develops that itch, and we see it and proclaim it and declare it thoroughly scratched in Christ. We enjoy him completely in these few moments. I pray that this will carry over into this week too. I pray that our joy will be fueled by a realization that we walk in the righteousness of another. The righteous path is Christ. We thank you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are good. We have enjoyed the table this morning. It's been heavy lifting and um, heavy lifting of heavy truths. Lord, I pray that we're listening. I pray that we're engaging and enjoying this finished message, this complete message in Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.